Okay, I want to present you Elizabeth von Kahlenberg, and I'm very glad that I have the opportunity to do this today. Thank you very much. You will find in your folders a handout. Um, the first part giving you the most important persons involved in the history. The history is a bit complicated and the persons are sometimes a bit complicated to get apart. So I have listed all of the, those who are most important to my talk. And further down you will find a, a small outline of what I'm going to say. You can see here Elizabeth of Kahlenberg, that's how we address her usually. Her full name is Elizabeth. Ah, that, that's the export, it doesn't want to deal with the umlauts. Elisabeth um, von Brandenburg, Fürstin von Kahlenberg Göttingen, that's her German title. So you see the last talk will um, bring together contributions from Denmark and from Brandenburg. Elizabeth was um, a Brandenburg princess, but her mother was um, a Danish princess, also called Elizabeth. So we earlier tried to track down her um, origins. Elizabeth is important because unlike the usual circumstances of the Reformation in which mighty men played decisive roles, it was in the, you can say, the southern part of Lower Saxony, it was a woman who introduced the Reformation. And to give you an idea where those um, things took place, I brought you some maps. So that's the modern Germany, and the part I'm going to talk about um, is in Lower Saxony, so that's the area between Hamburg, the south of Hamburg. Um, but in the 16th century, as we have already seen in Sarah's talk, it was not that unified, it's a bit complicated. So that's the political map in the 16th century. It shifted, it changed a lot in the 16th century, but it's about that moment in which um, Elizabeth was reigning there. So you can see the light green territories are Elizabeth's territories. That's the southern principality of Göttingen and the northern principality of Kahlenberg. They were originally independent, so they have two residencies. The southern is Münden, that's the city or town where Elizabeth used to be. She loved Münden and was there very often. And the other one is Neustadt am Rübenberge. All these territories, um, Kahlenberg, Göttingen, Wolfenbüttel and Lüneburg, are wealth territories. So all the rulers of these territories 
are Dukes of um, Wolfenbüttel Braunschweig, everybody, um, but they are assigned by their different territories. So Elizabeth was Duchess of um, Braunschweig Wolfenbüttel, but Princess of Kahlenberg Göttingen. And so you have um, Lüneburg, the Dutch of um, Wolfen, Braunschweig Wolfenbüttel, Prince of Lüneburg, and so on. That's the wealth um, yeah, custom of not giving the territory as a whole to the eldest male heir, but dividing it. It's an it's a old German law or custom. So those territories shifted a lot. When one line died out, it came to another principality. So it's very important when you speak about that time that you know who owned which territory. It's sometimes a bit tricky. So you have Kalder Göttingen, that's Elisabeth. The principality of Lüneburg is Ernest called the confessor, very important relative. Then the Red Territory is red because that's one of her enemies, a very important enemy. And these neighboring territories are allies of Elizabeth. It's um, Landgraviate of Hesse, that's Philip, very mighty um, figure of the German Reformation. And the Margraviate of Brandenburg, where she comes from, ruled by her brother Joachim later. So you see, the green territories are poor Elizabeth, the red is against. Just to give you a quick survey. Okay, who was Elizabeth and how did it come about that she introduced the Reformation? Elizabeth was born on the 24th of August, 1510, pro probably in Köln, we don't know exactly. Köln, which is not Cologne, but part of Berlin today. Um, the capital of Braunschweig, uh, Brandenburg, sorry. As a Margravine of Brandenburg, her father was the elector Joachim I of Brandenburg, from which we heard he was a strong support of the old Catholic faith and the emperor. And her mother was a princess of Denmark. 1525, Elizabeth had to marry the much older Eric I, called the Elder, from the house of Guelph, or Guelph, the later house of Hanover. He was Duke of Brunswick-Luneburg and Prince of Kahlenberg-Göttingen. At that time, Elizabeth was only 14 years old and her husband was 54, a widower without children and hence in need of a young and healthy woman to give him the desired heir. He did not hope in, hope in, in vain. The couple had four children. One of them became the so much wanted successor, Eric II, called the Younger. In 1535, Elizabeth became a supporter of Luther, first in private. And this despite of her father being a strong supporter uh, support of the emperor and defender of the old Roman faith. And it was not only Elizabeth who turned to the Reformation, but also her mother and her brothers. Elizabeth's husband, Eric I, the older, stuck with the old faith, but was tolerant. He acknowledged Luther's braveness. 
he first witnessed at the Diet of Worms in 1521. It was said he sent him a can of Einbeck beer to support his braveness. When Elizabeth eventually received the Lutheran communion, that was in April 1538, and thus this made her decision public, he reacted with equanimity. It was okay with him. Apparently, Elizabeth and her husband had a fairly happy marriage. We know from letters the Duke wrote to his young wife that he tried to pamper her and fulfill every wish she had. So it came as a shock to Elizabeth when her husband died in July 1540. He was away at the Diet of Agenau, that was the imperial diet in Agenau in Alsace. And we know from letters already written in the 1530s that Elizabeth, Elizabeth had already made plans for introducing the Reformation while her husband was still alive. And it may be for this reason that she wanted to introduce the new faith in her territory, that she knew that her husband was dead, was so determined to take over the reign for her, for her underage son. And this was not as obvious as it perhaps may seem. Following the rules of the House of Wealth, only a male family member could inherit the throne, which was later the reason why the personal union was um, abolished when Victoria dis um, success succeeded the throne. So for Elizabeth, the only way to take over the power over Kallenberg Göttingen was as a guardian for her son. And there was somebody else indeed who had the same ambition, her husband's nephew Henry V of Wolfenbüttel, Duke of the neighboring wealth territory, the Red Territory. Henry had always hoped to extend his principality by inheriting his childless uncle, and he was not delighted about his marriage with Elizabeth. He was a loyal ally of the emperor and hence a strong supporter of the Roman Catholic party. Elizabeth faced, faced the difficulty that her husband had named as guardian for her underage son, not only her, but also Philip of Hesse, who was here, and a strong supporter of the Reformation, um, Philip of Hesse, her brother Joachim II of Brandenburg, and this very nephew, her enemy Henry of Wolfenbüttel. Thus Elizabeth started preparations for becoming the main guardian and for introducing the Lutheran religion in Kallenberg-Göttingen immediately after receiving the message of her husband's death and despite being ill in bed herself. She had to act very carefully and wisely since she had mighty adversaries, not only Henry, but also the emperor himself. And the both of them did not have absolutely any interest of losing another German territory to the Lutheran party. Furthermore, she was confronted with the highly charged political situation in which the Protestant Marcaldic League, 
tried to extend its influence and the Catholic League of Nuremberg fought against this, while religious leaders of both sides held colloquies affecting not only religious life, but more important, political stability and le legal security in the Holy Roman Empire. So how did Elizabeth act? As I mentioned before, Elizabeth, Elizabeth had already started preparations while her husband was still alive. We can find some remarks in letters to the Landgrave Philip, close friend and ally already of her husband, and she, he was also becoming an ally and a supporter, a counselor to her. In January 1538, before she publicly received the Lutheran communion, she wrote to Philip in secret. She wanted to achieve with God's helps that our land may join your evangelical covenant, which is the Schmalkaldic League. And she asked Philip to greet the Saxon elector John Frederick, who was another powerful member of the Schmalkaldic League, and tell him about her plans. In February 1538, she got another yet similar letter smuggled to the Saxon city of Zerbst, where Philip met with John Frederick on behalf of agreements between the Schmalkaldic League and ambassadors of the Pope and the Emperor. In this letter she wrote in February 1538, she asked for an opportunity to join the agreements for those Nicodemics who are not yet able to join the League. And there is a third letter also to Philip in the autumn of that year, after Philip had sent her, on her request, the Lutheran minister and theologian Antonius Covinus in order to preach in the church of her residency in Münden. Now she writes to Philip, she's hoping he may not reject sending Corvinus again when she needs him one day for her country and people. This all was still when her husband was alive. It was vital for both for her reign as a guard for her underage son and for the introduction of the Reformation that she had the mighty Philip of Hesse not only as a counselor, but also as an ally against her political enemies. Regarding her husband's age, I think it must, must have been obvious to her that she might become a widow sometime, while the legal heir, his, her ch uh, son, was ch still a child. By revealing her plans to Philip already in the 1530s, she secured his support for the future. Now, a few days after her husband's death, she wrote a letter to Ernest I, called the Confessor, the Prince of Lüneburg. And he was an early and ardent supporter of Luther. And she informed him about her husband's death and asked him for his cousinly protection of her son, country, and people. So with Philip and Ernest, she sought the support of two mighty Protestant neighbors. Then, a few days later, on the 8th of August, 1540, she had her son, Eric, receive the Lutheran communion. This was a clear statement that the future ruler would be Protestant.
and she made sure that her allies took note of it. On the 10th of August, two days later, she sent another letter to Ernest the Confessor. She actually wanted to thank him for his delivery of wine, but added a postscript written by herself about her son having had the Lutheran communion. She also informed Philip three days later in August, expressing her hope for the support of the Schmalkaldic League in case her enemy Henry of Wolfenbüttel causes trouble about this step. Furthermore, these two letters were the preparation of more decisive steps. On the 11th of August, she wrote to Ernest's wife, again on behalf of the wine, and again in an additional note, she asked her to beg her husband to send his theologian and reformer, Urbanus Regius, from Celle to Elizabeth. To Philip, she wrote on the 16th of August, requesting Antonius Covinus once more. Then she met both reformers and discussed concrete measures to introduce the Reformation in, his, in her, her territories. Eventually, she commissioned Corvinus to work out a Lutheran church order. However, she did not introduce the new ordinance in that same year, 1540. It was first Philip who, in a letter from the 18th of October, warned her to be too quick, as it might annoy her nobility and chase them towards her enemy and co-guardian, Henry. Then she was well aware about the quarrels this step would cause with this co-guardian, Henry. She sought the advice and the support of the third co-guardian, her brother Joachim of Brandenburg. On this behalf, she sent him Corvin's church order. Joachim was, like Philip, very reluctant and urged his sister to hold back the Reformation. Both Philip and Joachim regarding the major context of the Holy Roman Empire, pointed out to her the current colloquies between the Protestant and the Roman Catholic party. They suspected Elizabeth would harm herself and cause the Reformation, herself and the cause of the Reformation at that time. Elizabeth, at that point, was persuaded and heeded their advice. However, this did not mean a halt to her plans, but only postponement, postponement. In the meantime, she carried on her preparations internally. On the 23rd of May, 1541, so that's almost a year later after the death of her husband, that was the first state diet in her territories, so the assembly of her nobility to acknowledge her reign, in May 1541, her nobility publicly confirmed her guardianship and reign for her underage son. For this, she had to give a promise of her duties, and the nobility was obliged to declare their loyalty. And to do this, they had a written declaration. And in this written declaration, there were a seemingly harm, harmless sentence saying the nobility acknowledged the Duchess' commitment to, and that's the citation, seek and promotes, promote God's glory and word. 
So that, this sounds absolutely neutral. However, the formulation immediately alerted the emperor. On the 2nd of June, he sent a letter making serious accusations and criticism of her introducing the new doctrine. He claimed that her late husband had accepted the Treaty of the Roman Nuremberg League, obligating him and his successors to stick with the Roman Catholic faith. And he accused her of having already introduced the new church order against the will, opinion, and conscience of her people. For this reason, the emperor wanted to appoint guardians for her in order to prevent any changes and to return to the old and legally binding state. In her answer to the emperor, Elizabeth pointed out that the introduction of the new doctrine was not her responsibility at all. Rather, a part of her people had already turned to the Reformation when her husband was still alive. For this reason, she writes, she simply did not have the power to withhold something from one part of her country which, had her husband, which her husband had already granted to the other part. So she was powerless in this point. So she wrote, she was forced to introduce the new church order to install a unified worship in her territories. This was a very clever argument, yet not completely true. It was clever because she could reject the very serious accusation of breaching the old and legally binding status, pointing to the true fact that four cities, among them Göttingen and Hanover, had indeed introduced the Reformation during her husband's lifetime. That was something he was forced to accept because he was already in need of money and the cities were wealthy. So he had to accept this. But Elizabeth clearly bent the truth concerning the rest of the country, in which definitely not all the nobility and common people were longing for the new doctrine. She used her nobility's acknowledgement of her duties, which we heard earlier, as a clear demand for the Reformation, which, is, which it was not. Her letter did not reach the emperor, yet two other letters from her allies, Philip and Joachim, echoing her argument, were delivered and apparently tackled the issue, since in the end no guardians were installed. In January 1542, Elizabeth eventually issued the, or the order to print the new Lutheran church ordinance, and had it delivered to town, cities, nobility, monasteries, and all churches in May. And still, at that point, the Reformation could not be introduced. Because shortly after the church order had been printed, the Schmalkaldic League attacked Elizabeth's enemy, Henry of Wolfenbüttel, drove him out of his territory, and introduced the Reformation in in his territory passed partly forcibly. So that was no help for her because the problem was that Philip, one of the problems was that Philip requested Corvinus back, which she needed, whom she needed, and he um, 
he was needed to introduce the new doctrine in Wolfenbüttel. The second, more serious reason was that Kahlenberg's towns and cities sympathized with Henry and rejected the forcible introduction of the Reformation. So Elizabeth made a remarkable, remarkable turn in regard to her allies. Despite having sought the League's support in former times and despite having requested and heeded Philip's advice for many years, she now <coughs> distanced herself from them. Against Philip's continuous requests, she never joined the League, neither did she support Philip or the League in public. A fact Philip was outraged about and which contributed to the decline of their friendship. For Elizabeth, though, this turn made it possible to introduce the Reformation in her territories once the situation had calmed down. The new church order was established eventually by a visitation of all churches and monasteries led by Corvinus from November 1542 to April 1543. Elizabeth, in my view, did not introduce the Reformation because of extending her power, because of political reasoning, or because of growing her wealth. It may well be the opposite. My impression is that she assumed the government for a minor son only with the, with the aim to introduce the Reformation. In my view, some sources and events point to this direction. Anyhow, she was a truly devoted woman. I would like to show you this on the basis of two facts. One is that she did not dissolve the monasteries in her territories, nor confiscated, or as we say, secularized their property. That was the case in Lüneburg. Ernest the Confessor did not dissolve the monasteries, but took away the major part of their wealth. That, that was something Elizabeth did not do. She not only issued a new order for the monastic life, which is part of her church ordinance, but also united the monastery's possessions into a so-called monastic bank, a klosterkasse, to prevent any future attempts of her successors to secularize monastic wealth. That is what she wanted. She wanted to retain the monasteries and to protect their possessions. With this, she led the funda foundations for the continuation of Lutheran monasteries in Lower Saxony until today. It is often said in Lower Saxony that the monasteries only survive for being accommodations for the nobility's unmarried daughters. And th this is definitely not true. All sources dealing with the monasteries in the Welf territories stress their spiritual task. And so do Elizabeth and Corvinus in the monastic order. They write, and it's on your um, handout too. Yeah, the first um, of the sources. It is proper that they, and that is the inhabitants of the monast monasteries, it is proper that they sing the decreed canonical hours with devotion and decently slowly, 
and herein employ diligence to not perceive any thoughtless, thoughtlessness or, or laziness. That's very short, but we have other sources pointing out very broad um, what the spiritual task of the monasteries is. The other fact I want to show you is that Elizabeth was a committed writer, not only of handbooks, but also of religious poems and songs. At the end of my paper, I would like to present you one of these songs. Elizabeth wrote it in 1555 in Great Sadness. Her son, Eric II, had returned to the old Roman faith, had lost an important battle. He entered following her advice and on the base of her financial guarantee. And now she was trapped in Hanover because of the debts she owed to the city. So she writes, a song from the sad duchess, on Sunday esto mihi, that's the, Luther, that's the Lutheran name of the Sunday, at Hanover, anno 55. Through you, my God, I can do many things. With joy and love, I backing away, according to God's will, from this valley of heavy sadness, gently and falling silent. What God told me, he will prove by me. All this does Christ, God's true son, the Prince of Peace, who in this distress does not leave me. Through this, it can truly be known that he is the right helper. The high king I called upon, the mirac miraculous. I did not doubt his help to splinter the driver's beating stick. He is named counselor, hero, might, in him my sighing stops. Everlasting Father, which Isaiah does say, furthermore the scripture reveals he has never lied, unlike the children of men who have betrayed me. Having contributed to my country, I am withdrawing. I am aiming at the Lord's power. He will guide me by his angels without peril, honestly, faithfully, without any harm. Hereby, I want to leave up to my dear God everything. I want to forgive you and excuse everything. Do not want you to pay. He is his faithful's protection and shield, who may guard us everywhere. Amen. So not we, not we, but your name be honored. Elizabeth died on the 27th of May, 1558, aged only 48 in Ilmenau, which is in Thuringia, at the castle of her second husband. Her reign over Kahlenberg-Gottingen lasted six years, in which she led the foundation not only for the Lutheran faith in, her, in this part of Lower Saxony, but also for the preservation of the Lutheran abbeys of Kahlenberg. And I think it is for this that she never will be forgotten.